Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Donald Trump has been indicted by a Manhattan grand jury, but so far the charges remain under seal. Is prosecuting a president or a former president doomed to fail? Big spending, big deficits, big debt are not the path to prosperity, says a Scotiabank economist. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business will join us to talk about that. And the public inquiry into Nova Scotia's mass shooting in 2020 has found widespread failures in how the Mounties responded to that tragedy. What can we learn from it? Well, we'll talk about that. It's all coming up with the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Why do voters seem to just turn out budgets? Why do we just seem to get turned off all these? And I've noticed a certain amount of skepticism and frustration as we've talked about the provincial budget a week or so ago, and then more recently, of course, the federal budget. Well, our next guest touches on that in the piece that uh, is uh, published in the Toronto Sun. Uh, it's uh, it's called Voters to Our Budgets Because They See Them as Fiscal Illusions. What's that mean? Well, we'll find out in just a second from our next guest. He is Warren Kinsella, former special assistant to Jean Chrétien and war room director for Dalton McGinty in uh, three elections, three successful elections, we might add. Uh, Warren, my friend, good to have you back in the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks for having me, my friend. I wait, t- t- talk to us about this frustration. Now, I can remember, and I was on, you certainly can, uh, when budgets, especially uh, the, the, the federal budgets, were a big deal. I mean, you know, they were cloaked in secrecy. If there was a leak, uh, people used to get charged. I mean, they could lose their jobs. And, uh, and, and you know, banks and, and, and everyone else seemed to just hold their breath waiting to find out what's happening. The attitude these days just seems to be, oh, yeah, another budget, same old, same old. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, maybe and maybe that's a bad thing because budgets do affect people's lives, you know, how much taxes they pay and which programs they can get and all that kind of stuff. But, I mean, it you know, successive governments, of, you know, the blue and red stripes both have, I think, been doing budgets all wrong. And, uh, you know, the way in which they express it, the way in which they fudge the numbers. And, and I think principally because they've got too many messages. You know, the one thing we, I think we learned uh, from politics over the years is that, you know, if you've got 100 messages, you don't have any messages. you got to keep it simple and be respectful of the fact that people have busy lives, busy daily lives. So you've got to be straightforward and give them the facts right off the top. And, you know, this budget, like so many others, just hasn't done that. You know, and I would challenge anybody listening right now you know, name me five things that you can recall off the top of your head that were in the budget. And I think most people couldn't do it. Yeah, as I was reading your piece yesterday, it reminded me of that, that song from the musical Chicago, you know, give them the old razzle-dazzle. Uh, you know, just blind them with big numbers and their eyes will glaze over. And, and, you know, you can say whatever you want because they've tuned out. They have. And, you know, another big problem with budgets these days is people have been spun or in some cases flat out lied to uh, so many times. And it it has really broken down the consensus that used to exist that, you know, you could agree with a budget or, or disagree with it, but, you know, there would be a consensus that the numbers were right. Well, governments have consistently messed around with those numbers so many times. The public, Joe and Jane Front Porch, have a tendency to just tune it all out and say, well, I don't believe any of it because all of these guys are lying to me all the time. And so now polls have shown, and not just by one pollster, as many as 75% of Canadians don't believe anymore in what government says or does. And, you know, one of the victims of that have been these federal budgets where people just don't believe what they're being told. 
Well, and uh, the sky is falling, the sky is falling before the budget. And then we kind of look at it a couple of months after and said, well, what's changed really? And, and in our everyday lives, I, I, there are exceptions. You know, the daycare program is, is some, one of those, I suppose. And every now and then something like that comes along. But by and large, it, it really doesn't have the impact that we thought it would have on our lives. No, and I, and I think that's a good example that you give of it. You know, that's an important program. Child care is an important program for so many Canadians. But the problem is that this government in particular, but also previous governments, just load too much stuff into the shopping cart. And so they've got, they're trying to reach all these different discrete audiences in the way that they do in election campaigns. And as a consequence, kind of the main message gets lost. You know, literally in this budget, as you pointed out off the top, um, Freeland has all kinds of spending programs in there, but she's also got some tax cuts um, and some restraint measures. And so that's great. Whether you agree with her or not on either side of the proposition, that's fine. My point is, well, you know, she's she's kind of up and down like a toilet seat. You, you can't figure out what is the main message that she wants to communicate. Is it spending? on social programs, or is it restraint and tightening our belts? Like it, it used to be that we would have budgets that had one main message. This one had multiple messages. And as a result, you know, I think by this time next week, everybody will have forgotten it. But isn't that politics 101, Warren? I mean, it, you've, you've had input into a political speech or two in your time. And, and isn't the, the, the stated theme is, is, okay, what's the message going to be? Now, you can, you can go off on, on you know, side roads every now and then, but you've got to come back to that main theme. This is what this one's all about. This is the message I want people to come away with. And, and that, you know, as you've said, the last couple of budgets, the last couple of governments, uh, the old phrase, you know, they're going to try to please everybody, please nobody. When you look at uh, Stephen Harper and Paul Martin, this was a few years ago. Why did Stephen Harper win the 2005-2006 election campaign? My opinion, you know, sponsorship scandal was in the mix there. Fatigue with the Liberal government was in the mix. But to me, the biggest reason of all is Paul Martin had a platform document with close to 200 promises in it. Stephen Harper had five. He had, you know, cutting the GST, accountability act. You know, he had things in there that you could remember that you could kind of, you know, get your mind around. And Martin just had too many messages and it got lost on people, you know, and it's not a case of guys like me who work in the back room saying voters are dumb. Voters are smart. They're intuitive. They know what they want. They know what they care about. But they're very, very busy in their daily lives, you know, getting kids to hockey practice or, you know, getting through traffic or catching up on the bills. They're busy. So, you know, political people, government people need to be more respectful of that. And they've got to figure out ways to reach those busy people in a way that respects their lives and the amount of time that they've got in a day. And governments just aren't doing that anymore. They're just like, it's like they're getting a machine gun out and just spraying stuff all over the place and thinking that, you know, people are going to remember it. People aren't remembering it. Well, and we've seen examples of that, but you're right, not lately. I mean, you know, Kretchen had the little red book. Uh, you, you could refer to it and say, okay, this is what this government's going to do. And, and Mike Harris had uh, the common sense revolution. Well, I agree or disagree with the stuff that was in it, but it was concise and it was there for us. That's right. And, you know, the other problem that's happened, and we saw this in the pandemic, it used to be like the dominant issue at any given time in Canada, you know, the dominant public policy issue is health care. And obviously that spiked dramatically during the pandemic. 
And, you know, the polls and the work that my firm has done for years showed that doctors and nurses were seen as the best spokespeople for healthcare and what should happen to it. Well, that totally broke down in the pandemic because they started disagreeing with each other in public, you know, on the efficacy of vaccines or public health measures. Like in some cases, they were fighting with each other in, in public. So it was predictable that you would have a growth of a constituency of people who said, well, I don't believe any of you, and I don't believe anything that you have to say about vaccines or public health. I'm just going to do my own research on the Internet. And that's a dangerous thing, uh, as we all know. And I think that's what's happened with the budget, too. You can't find anybody with any degree of credibility who can tell you what Christopher Freeland's budget this week was all about. You literally can't find a person that you can trust because trust and consensus has been lost. Well, I would think also, I mean, we've talked about some of the past budgets and some of the past finance ministers. Uh, they didn't have the, uh, you know, the social media platforms to contend with that, that are present these days. Uh, so in other words, you know, you'd better be direct with your message right now because there's going to be so much other stuff and misinformation on those sites that people will gravitate to if they don't understand what you're trying to say. And an excellent example of what you're talking about, there's an American writer who I'm a big fan of named David Schenck, and he has a name for what you just described. He calls it data smog. So in your average person's life, this busy person I referred to a minute ago, you know, before they even have breakfast because of the Internet, because of devices that ever, all of us carry around all the time, they're bombarded by hundreds of thousands of words and images every single day before their day even gets started. It's too much information. You know, information used to be like caviar. Well, now it's like potatoes and like people filter it out. So data smog is, you know, where people just say, look, I can't follow all this stuff anymore. I'm just going to tune it all out. And, you know, political parties and governments and corporations and unions, too, need to figure out a way to simplify their message and break through the data smog. And one of the guys who's the best at that in the world, as much as I dislike him, is Donald Trump. Trump figured out how to make his message, you know, simplicity, repetition, volume, simplicity, repetition, volume. That's how you break through with a budget or whatever you're selling. And, you know, that's all that works anymore. Well, let's, let's pivot over there. i got a couple of minutes left here. Uh, the last 24 hours have been just ridiculous down south of the border. The indictment has come in. We we're told there are 30 of them. I don't, I don't know if anybody's seen them. It took a couple of hours, but the, uh, the, the MAGA people have started to, to move in now, and you've seen the signs and the demonstrations are going on. What, what's going on here? What's your read on, on what, 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 what the indictments mean and, and what's going to happen going forward? Well, full disclosure, as you know, and you and I have talked about it before, I worked for Hillary Clinton in yep. three different states. I worked for her in her Brooklyn headquarters, so I'm obviously partial to her. But, you know, the United States, celebrity culture, as Gwyneth Paltrow showed us yesterday, as yeah. Ashley Simpson showed us before, celebrities are judged according to a different standards. Donald Trump is one of the biggest celebrities there is. The other problem with this, this indictment that, that, you know, we haven't seen these 30-plus counts, um, that the grand jury handed down. But, you know, at the center of it is this legal theory. Is it legal to take, you know, uh, accounting, um, how can I express it? I don't want to say fraud because that's an allegation that hasn't been proven yet. But let's say creative accounting. Is, yeah, creative accounting. That's a good way of saying it that took place here. And then apparently it was made use of 
funds from the presidential campaign that Trump won, and that transformed it into a felony from a misdemeanor. Anyway, as you can hear from the way I'm trying to describe it, it's too complicated. It's a legal theory, and you don't try out a legal theory when you're prosecuting a media-savvy former president of the United States. It's just uh, it's doomed to failure, I think. And the other thing that hurts his prosecution is the two main witnesses. You know, one is a porn star, and one is a guy who's been sent to jail for fraud and perjury. Those are the two main witnesses for the prosecution. So, I, I you know, I think on that basis alone, Trump's going to be able to defeat it. And if that happens, and, and you're not the first one to say that, it, it, it's, it's rather tenuous at this stage, what does that do to future indictments, if, or are there going to be future indictments? There's a number of investigations going on right now, but if this one fizzles, does that, does that deflate these other ones as well? Oh, I think it's released the Kraken. I think it's, it's the, the opposite. Like, there's one thing that has unified all of the Republican contenders for the presidential nomination this morning, and that's this indictment of Donald Trump. Even Ron DeSantis in Florida, who would be the guy responsible for extraditing Trump to New York to face arraignment, is saying, you know, this is this is wrong and he's going to fight it every way he can. And Nikki Haley and everybody else. This is united Republicans and it's united Republican voters, I think, behind Trump. I think Trump now has much more of a shot at getting the nomination than DeSantis precisely because this Harvard-educated Manhattan registered Democrat prosecutor has done this. I think it's a big mistake because it's going to turn Trump into a martyr, and it guarantees that when the Republicans take the White House, they're going to return the favor to Democrats. Well, John Bolton made that prediction a couple of weeks ago, didn't he? He said if Trump beats this, he will get reelected. I don't know if he'll get reelected. I mean, the, a lot of the stuff that Trump sells, Americans aren't buying anymore. And I think that's why a lot of Democrats were leaning towards, uh, Republicans were re- leaning towards DeSantis. But this really does change things. You and I are going to be talking about Donald Trump and the prosecution of Donald Trump for months to come. And it's going to have the effect of crowding out the story that the other Republican contenders are trying to tell. So, uh, you know, I, I just think this prosecutor, he may be right. He may have some actual case here to bring against uh, Donald J. Trump. That's certainly what the grand jury thinks. But I I think all he's done is turn Trump into a martyr and um, made it very difficult for others to beat him for that Republican nomination. Warren Kinsella, Warren, as always, thank you so much for the time. I always enjoy our conversations. Have a great weekend. Yeah, you too, my friend. Thank you. Take care. Uh, of course, uh, he worked on uh, Jean Chrétien's campaign, Dalton McGuinney's campaign, and as he just uh, reminded us, uh, Hillary Clinton's campaigns uh, a couple of years ago as well. Uh, and he's absolutely right. I mean, this is this is not the end of the Donald Trump saga. It's the beginning of a very important chapter. We're going to follow that closely. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The three largest economies in the world with the AAA credit rating, uh, which means that our plan is responsible. Uh, it also is focused on delivering the healthcare supports Canadians need, as well as moving forward uh, on the cleaner economy of the future with great jobs for the middle class. So this is the right budget for the time. We remain fiscally responsible, even as we're investing for a better tomorrow. Prime Minister Trudeau uh, defending his budget uh, to reporters just a couple of days ago. Not everybody shares that enthusiasm, though. Uh, There was a rather scathing op-ed piece in the Financial Post the other day uh, from Derek Holt, who's an economist with uh, Scotiabank, 
who basically lambastes uh, the prime minister and the finance minister uh, for what they consider to be uh, reckless spending. So where are we on this? Was this a bad budget? Is it going to put us deeper in the hole or is it the first step on our way out of here? Ask our next guest about that. Marvin Ryder, professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Marvin, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for joining us today. Glad to be with you, Bill. I, I, in all the years I've been covering federal budgets, provincial budgets, uh, I've never heard anybody say, this is exactly what we need. Boy, these guys nailed it. There's always going to be criticism one way or another. But what, what's your read on what you heard from Minister Freeland? And, and, as, and put that in the context of where we are right now economically. Well, before the budget was released, Bill, uh, Christian Freeland and Prime Minister Trudeau were saying that this is a fiscally constrained budget. We're, we're showing restraint. We're not, we're not blowing our brains out. And to put that in context, uh, on Tuesday at noon, five hours, four hours before the budget was presented, we had a report that said for the first 10 months of the current fiscal year, the deficit was only $6.6 billion. So I was expecting Christian Freeland to stand up and say, because of my leadership, you know, uh, the deficit, which had been projected to be $34 billion, is down to $24 billion or something like that. We'd all stand up and give her a round of applause. But instead, she said the deficit for the current fiscal year is going to come in at $44 billion. Wait a minute. That's up $10 billion and $38 billion more than you spent in the first 10 months of the year. What the heck happened? Now, clearly what's happened is this new federal-provincial health care agreement, which is going to see billions and billions and billions, or maybe tens of billions, tens of billions of dollars given to the provinces for health care. And I can't complain about that. We need primary care, whether it's doctors or nurses or long-term care facilities. But it is a reminder that with an aging population, health care is not free. And it does come with this gigantic cost. Um, so I think this is one of the things that these economists are reacting to. You said you were going to be restrained. You could have been restrained. Why did you give away all of this much money this quickly? And here's the second example, Bill. Last October... When she did a fiscal update, she said, according to our projections, we should be back to balance or close to balance by the 2026-27 fiscal year. Now, I realize that's four or five years down the road, but at least we saw a path back to balance. Uh, when she got up Tuesday, that's disappeared completely. Even in 26-27, we're not balanced, and she's not prepared to commit to when we would be balanced. Again, if you're being fiscally prudent, this doesn't seem like the budget that you would have come out with. You would have stuck with giving us some date in the future, not tomorrow, not the day after, but some date in the future when you'd be back to balance. So I don't think it's a bad budget. We're spending on priorities that we all have as Canadians, whether it's health care or a green economy. But I'm just wondering if they could have showed a little more restraint. Well, and to that end, and I don't disagree with you because I heard this from a lot of different sources, uh, but but given the scenario that they're in right now, uh, you know, which is the political reality, uh, if they didn't spend this money, especially on some of those health care items you talked about, like the dental program, uh, they ran the risk of losing government. And, uh, you know, I, I, you've got to weigh that in the, in the fact. I know that's not what they said they were going to do, but there's a political reality here that has to play into this. Yeah, absolutely. So as a minority parliament, of course, you can be deposed at any time. There can be a vote of confidence and you lose it. Sure, I understand the NDP have said, if you do A, B, and C, we'll continue to support you. But that's that's not bound in stone. There's no set set contract you have 
So I would tell you candidly, if I was the prime minister, I wouldn't want to fight an election on this budget. Yes, there are a few goodies and yes, there are some things. But on balance, this is not a budget that wins a lot of applause for voters. And, and again, I'm thinking as a minority parliament, you have to give something for your partner to the NDP to keep them being your partner. But did you have to give this much this quickly? And, and I just feel like there was a different tack she could have taken still in the same spirit, but uh, without all the big price tag attached to it. Uh, John Manley, who was a former finance minister, of course, uh, under the uh, the Cretchen and Martin governments, weighs in on this too, as you might expect in situations like that, and suggesting, just as you did, that uh, that maybe maybe there was a little too much uh, in the way of commitments here. But I, I'm, I'm just going to play devil's advocate for a second. I don't want to get your, your perspective on this, Marvin. Uh, when Manley and, and Cretchen himself was a former finance minister before he became prime minister, it was a different kettle of fish. I mean, this, I think society, not just Canada, but other economies are pivoting to a more green economy, and that's going to cause new investment. And at the same time, we're going to, in some ways, have to start building that infrastructure. It's not a matter of, of, of fine-tuning the infrastructure that we have right now. So one way or another, we're going to run into capital costs here, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. And, and Bill, you didn't say it, but let me also give more context. In the United States, uh, Joe Biden's Build Back Better plan and Inflation Reduction Plan had earmarked tens of billions of dollars to develop green technologies in the United States. Biden would tell you, I want those jobs, but I want them here. I don't want them other places in the globe. And we would run the risk if we didn't try to at least do something. We're not going to try to match the Americans. You can't outspend the Americans, but at least at least something in that ballpark. So again, I, do, I don't disagree that we needed to invest in green technologies over the next five years. We need to make sure we've got the supports in place. Um, and again, her, her budget, if you read it closely, most of the big dollars attached to those supports are in fiscal years ahead of us. They're not in the current fiscal year. So yeah, we have to do something. That's absolutely correct. I'm just not sure that the overall price tag needed to be quite as high as it needed to be. You could always start with an amount, let's say $20 billion. And if that didn't turn out to be enough, you could always change it a year from now, two years from now, three years from now. One other quick note, Bill, in her budget, she has built in a growth projection for the Canadian economy of this year of 0.3%, 0.3%, well below 1%. That tells me that Christian Freeland is expecting a mild recession in Canada this year. So I suspect another reason why her numbers are as big as they are is that she's got a big contingency set aside just in case she needs it, just in case we need to do something six months from now. She isn't going to have to uh, change her budget dramatically. She could work within the framework. And then the flip side of that, if the recession doesn't happen, she'll have some money towards the end of the year to say, well, I know I, I told you it was a $40 billion deficit, but guess what? It came in at only $35 billion, and we'll all call her a hero. Just on that point, I know we're just about out of time here. We, you know, the week before that, when you and I talked after the Ontario budget, uh, Minister Bethlen Falvey was was quite, you know, candid about the fact that yeah, we got a lot more revenue here because you know interest rates went up and, and sales taxes go up. Of course, uh, I didn't hear much reference to that. I, I think there was an expectation that even the federal government would have a little more money to play with than they maybe had anticipated. Is, does that come into play here? Because it, it doesn't seem to have been something that was on front of mind for the minister anyway. Right. So it, it affected the current fiscal year. This is why they'd only yeah. had a deficit of $6.6 billion in the current fiscal year. That's why I expected that number to stay low for the current fiscal year. Now, she said going forward, 
with growth of only 0.3%, we're not going to get as much revenue as I once thought we were going to get. But still, nonetheless, they had the revenue increase from the current fiscal year going forward. It really speaks to the size of the spending that's going on. Although it's billed as a restraint budget, all of the new monies that have come into the federal government have been spent in these healthcare transfers or the dental program or setting money aside for the green economy. And, and again, I just would have thought she could have dialed it back a little bit, enjoyed a little, a little of this fiscal windfall that she had instead yeah. of just shoveling it all out the door. Exactly. Marvin, as always, thanks for the time today. Glad to be with you, Bill. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Terrible news, of course, about uh, the inquiry that happened in Nova Scotia, the mass shooting that uh, killed so many people. Uh, and the report was finally released. And uh, it's uh, it's an ugly, ugly story uh, that uh, actually pretty much uh, validates a number of the concerns that many people had uh, as this was unfolding and the investigation started to begin. Uh, the Prime Minister uh, was there in Nova Scotia for the release of the report, and uh, this is what he had to say. We will take the time now to properly digest and understand the recommendations and the conclusions and the um, opportunities that the Commission has put forward for us to take up. There's no question there need to be changes, and there will be, but we will take the time to get those right. Uh, just to recap, uh, as we know, this occurred some time ago now, over the course of 13 hours, this is around April 18th and 19th in the year 2020, a gunman killed 22 people, including a pregnant woman, across three Nova Scotia counties, dressed as a Mountie and driving a replica RCMP vehicle. Uh, it was a, a horror story come to life for so many people in that area and for people that were trying to follow the events uh, during those uh, 13 hours as uh, we heard tidbits of information, and sadly, even those tidbits were maybe more than some of the residents in the area that were being impacted by that were able to ascertain. I want to bring uh, Michael Kempe into the conversation. Michael, of course, is an associate professor of criminology at the University of Ottawa. Uh, Michael, good to have you with us to, to dissect this, I guess, and, and go through this. It took an awfully long time. Uh, there's been some major changes in the RCMP hierarchy as a result of this. I, I, is the, does the report touch all the bases here? There's so much we wanted to find out about protocols and, and who failed and why they failed. Well, Bill, for me, what's different about this report is that its recommendations are not very controversial. We've seen them all in various reports and reviews before. This commission has pulled it all together. They've reviewed all of those previous recommendations. They've asked the question of why they haven't been implemented before, and they've gone wider to pull together that range of recommendations that really touches everything about the RCMP, not just those ground-level questions of who did what, but what's wrong with the culture that leads to the continuance of these types of mistakes, what's wrong with the training system that leads to cultures that produce these types of mistakes, and what's wrong with the relationship between the RCMP and the federal government that tends to discourage implementing reforms that, as I say, have been kicking around for basically decades. Uh, let's just get on with it already. Well, sure. And it's it's not as if there weren't previous incidents here that they could have learned from, from Thorpe all the way to, well, the tragedy in, in uh, New Brunswick, just not too far before this one, uh, where people died and recommendations were made there too, as, as we talked about at the time, Michael. And, and it just seems as if there's never any follow-up here. Well, there isn't. And the main difficulty, as I see it, is there's no huge political reward 
for getting RCMP reform right, and therefore politicians are reluctant to touch it. What I mean by that is the RCMP, of course, is not the police of jurisdiction in most of Canada's major urban centers. So if you're looking for votes in the GTA or the greater Montreal area or the big cities across Canada, it's really not going to get you any votes. The RCMP doesn't directly impact the lives of the voters that help form government in those major urban centers. So it takes political vision and not a line on an eye on who's going to get elected to implement RCMP reform. And, and it's it's sad to think that there's that political attitude towards this, but we'd be naive if we think it didn't exist to some extent. Uh, the concern here, though, is it, they go through some of the events here, Michael. I, I can't read the whole report, but uh, just to recall those events, uh, this, as we mentioned, it goes went on for a period of 13 hours. And and uh, the sense I'm getting here, and I think it's it's pretty clear in the report, is the RCMP knew what was happening. They didn't know exactly what was going to be next, but they knew what was happening. And they virtually said nothing. There were no warnings, and, they, and, the, and their excuse for the rationale for this was we didn't want to alarm anybody. I mean, when there's a, a crisis going on like this and people are getting shot and killed, uh, isn't that a time for communication? Well, it is. And then the easy answer is to say, well, there was a mistake made. So what we would have done in the past is say, let's just get a little bit of better training and correct RCMP officers for how they're meant to communicate with the public and other policing agencies. But then this report goes in a better direction, a more accurate direction to say that lack of communication and coordination is a part of an RCMP culture that does not value partnerships with communities, partnerships with other policing organizations, and tends to prefer to keep things in-house and do it the Mountie way. So. To fix the problem, it's not a little bit of training. It's about remaking the entire organization to do different things with different training and a whole different culture. Even within the organization, I mean, we've heard about, uh, you know, there can be problems in, between CSIS, for instance, and the RCMP and other organizations like that. They don't like to share information, don't like to share intelligence. Uh, and, and basically, there's a re resentment between the two of them. Uh, do you get the feeling that that even exists within the RCMP? Oh, absolutely. That's what I often say to people. There is no RCMP. There are many RCMPs. Think of the size of that organization. We're talking about 20,000 sworn officers, another 10,000 civilian members, a $5 billion a year enterprise. There's no way that that's some sort of coherent animal right across the country. There are divisions. There are little fiefdoms that some divisional commanders maintain independent from Ottawa, and they build their own little thing. And some of those divisions are not moving in the same direction as where the service as a whole either wants to go or is being told to go by its political masters and its civilian advisory board at home in Ottawa. Yet there seemed to be a communication link such as it was between uh, the, the, the federal cabinet and, and the head of the RCMP. I mean, questions were asked. Now, this is somewhat after the fact, though. Uh, but there seems to be a breakdown in communication uh, further down the chain. And, and, and maybe that's that what I think it has to be one of the major factors here is that, you know, the, the left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing. No, they don't. And there's also this problem where the, the commissioner of the RCMP is a deputy minister who answers directly to the Minister of Public Safety. That's a problem because even if the Public Safety Minister is on their best behavior and doesn't lean on the commissioner one way or the other in inappropriate ways, any commissioner will understandably keep an eye on what they think are the preferences of their minister at whose pleasure they serve 
And in other words, manage upwards and seek to please their minister, as opposed to always putting the needs of the public and the organization of the RCMP first. That's why you've got to have a different management structure where the commissioner of the RCMP mostly answers to some form of civilian oversight body secondarily to a minister. There's no way a commissioner should be a deputy minister within the structure of public safety. I'm going to go back, if I could, to the, to the day that this happened, to the tragedy that it happened. Is there no policy in place, or was this a policy that just wasn't adhered to? I mean, when there's a, 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 a live shooter, there's an incident like this, uh, and, and no communication. I mean, I, just about every other jurisdiction, at least you'll hear, uh, you know, stay in your house, keep your windows closed. And, and there have been warnings similar to that in other incidents, not as severe as this, most certainly. Uh, but there was little to nothing. And this was a Saturday night into a Sunday morning. I, I have no idea what their mindset was to simply say, you know, well, I guess we can only speculate, can't we, Michael? Did they think they were going to catch the guy before he killed anybody else? Well, that was part of it. And again, part of it reflects that culture that the RCMP prefers to handle everything themselves, the so-called Mountie Way. So when we get into the details of the report, you see there was failures in intelligence at the level of uptake and then dissemination. So public are always the ones with the very best and most up-to-date information. Witnesses, in other words, had known and were telling local police, municipal police in the neighboring area, the shooter was in a replica RCMP vehicle, and there was a little bit of a delay in the RCMP finding that out because they weren't in direct contact with the witnesses or neighboring police organizations. When they then found out the RCMP, that is, they were then slow in disseminating that information. They held back in what they released, first of all, in Twitter, which was not a great way to communicate with people in, in rural Nova Scotia where there are small numbers of people on Twitter at any given time. And that delay in information led to people not taking steps, citizens not taking steps to secure themselves. The victims were saying that their families, there's no way that their loved ones would have been out and about had they known that there was a shooter disguising themselves in a, in a police vehicle. The other element to this, too, sadly, it's, it's, it's part of a number of these investigations that we've heard over the years. Uh, there were red flags about the shooter uh, long before this event happened uh, that were seemingly ignored or, or, or minimized, whatever the case might be. But uh, I know that's what it could have, should have. Uh, but, you know, you always wonder, why didn't they do something then? Why didn't they intercede here? And it didn't seem to happen. That's where you get into the wrong model of policing. So... Some municipalities across Canada have become more effective at approaching things like domestic violence and dealing with people who are known uh, troubles in the community before they get to the level of engaging in criminality. They call this the hub model of policing. It's running really well in Edmonton and places like Peel here in Ontario. Now, other police organizations are a little bit behind on that. The RCMP is way behind in working on those networked approaches uh, to crime prevention. And this is really what the report is getting at. It's not about saying to the RCMP, keep doing what you're doing, but do a better job in policing and paying attention to the warning signs of domestic violence and the possession of firearms and so forth. It's saying change your model fundamentally with different training and different assignments so that you're a little bit more like some of the leading police agencies across Canada that are doing this type of embedded policing deal with troublesome people in the community before they even become criminal issues. 
Well, and and that was another missed opportunity, and and, and tragically so, is because I guess when they finally did uh, catch up with the the common law spouse here, I mean uh, Lisa Banfield, they basically treated her like a co-conspirator, when in fact she was a victim. I mean she had been assaulted and had reported assaults, uh, and and again this is a seeming a, a, a police service that was not doing their homework. I mean they did have a recorded uh, element, at least one, we're told of 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 he beating her. Uh, and you know, but for her all of a sudden to be you know, held as a suspect, I think it, it just tells you about bad policing and bad decisions all the way around here. It does, and it takes it away from the police officers on the ground who were in a very dangerous situation, and certainly things fell to the side a little bit in terms of proper protocols and whatnot. But it's not simply that those officers did the wrong thing. It's as you dial back and see that the structures are not correct, the type of training that the RCMP gets for the many different types of services it provides across Canada is out of date at depot in Saskatchewan, and that overall the structure of management of the organization simply isn't right. You get into the idea that we're not blaming individual police officers. There's a structural issue here, and good news for us is the recommendations for reform are things that have been talked about for a long time and are not particularly controversial and are things that are, be, are being done to very good effect elsewhere in Canada and the world. It's really time to act on these recommendations because we've now seen that failure to act has such catastrophic consequences. Prime Minister has promised things are going to change. Uh, uh, the rhetorical question here, Michael, is clearly, where do you begin? I mean, uh, it, the RCMP hierarchy, certainly, and, and this is not the first time we've talked about some changes that need to happen at that level, but what do you happen in, in communities? What do you happen, like you say, these are not community police officers. They're charged with looking after that. They are, in fact, the, the law enforcement officers for these areas, but there doesn't seem to be, it, whether it was in New Brunswick a few years before this or in this one in Nova Scotia, very much integration and very much communication between that that police service and those communities. Well, that's right. And step number one there for me would be to say, okay, if the RCMP is going to carry on providing contracted policing services in municipalities across a lot of Canada, you have to change the practice of treating local community policing as the first rung on the ladder in a career of an RCMP officer. In other words, the sort of thing you have to do to get ahead in the organization before you get to the real marquee policing work at higher levels of, say, federal policing and international crime and all of that. You map out how many of our officers are interested in a long-term career in local crime prevention and community policing. You do training for that, and you modernize the RCMP's contribution Otherwise, they shouldn't be doing contracted local policing. And if they want to continue, let's structure the organization properly to do that. Well, uh, this is not the end of the process. Uh, this report is uh, hopefully the beginning of uh, not just the healing, but of the reconstruction of, uh, of the way these systems work. Uh, great to get your perspective on this, Michael. Thanks so much for this today. Okay, always, Bill. Thank you. Take care. Michael Kempko, Associate Professor in Criminology at the University of Ottawa. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.